It's a great honor for me to be here at the Empire Club of Canada today, which is arguably the most famous and historically relevant speakers podium to have ever existed in Canada. It has offered its podium to such international luminaries as Winston Churchill, Ronald Reagan, Audrey Hepburn, the Dalai Lama, Indira Gandhi, and closer to home, from Pierre Trudeau to Justin Trudeau. Literally generations of our great nation's leaders, alongside with those of the world's top international diplomats, heads of state, and business and thought leaders. It is a real honor and a distinct privilege to be invited to speak to the Empire Club of Canada, which has been welcoming international diplomats, leaders in business and in science and in politics when they stand at that podium. They speak not only to the entire country, but they can speak to the entire world. Good afternoon, fellow directors, past presidents, members, and guests. Welcome to the 118th season of the Empire Club of Canada. My name is Kelly Jackson. I'm the president of the board of directors of the Empire Club of Canada and associate vice president at Humber College. And I'm your host for today's virtual event, Canada's video game industry, a national champion making a global impact. I'd like to begin this afternoon with an acknowledgement that I am hosting this event within the traditional and treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit and the homelands of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wyandotte peoples. In acknowledging traditional territories, I do so from a place of understanding the privilege my ancestors and I have had in this country since they first arrived here in the 1830s. As farmers in southwestern Ontario, I imagine they felt a deep connection to the land, and yet likely did not recognize how that connection was built on the displacement of others. Delivering a land acknowledgement for me is always an important opportunity to reflect on our human connection and responsibility to care for the land and to recognize that to do so, we must always respect each other and acknowledge our histories. We encourage everyone tuning in today to learn more about the traditional territory on which you work and live. The Empire Club of Canada is a nonprofit organization. I would now like to take a minute to recognize our sponsors who generously support the club and make these events possible and complimentary for our supporters to attend. Thank you to our lead event sponsors, BLG and Durham College. Thank you also to our supporting sponsors, Global Public Affairs and Nordicity. And thank you to our season sponsors, Bruce Power, Canadian Bankers Association, Leona and Waste Connections of Canada. I want to remind everyone participating today that this is an interactive event, and so those attending live are encouraged to engage with their speakers by taking advantage of the question box by scrolling down below your on-screen video player. We have allotted some time for Q&A towards the end of the discussion. If you require technical assistance, please start a conversation with our team using the chat button on the right-hand side of your screen. We also invite you to share your thoughts on social media using the hashtags you will see displayed on the screen throughout the event. To those watching on demand at a later date and to those tuning in on the podcast, welcome. It is now my pleasure to call this virtual meeting to order. I am delighted to introduce our panelists. Jason Hilchey, President and CEO, Entertainment Software Association of Canada and our moderator today. 
Deirdre Eyre, Head of Canadian Operations, Other Ocean Group Canada, also known as BEEP. Francis Baye, Vice President, Corporate Affairs, Ubisoft. And Michelle Lean, Director of Sales, Microsoft Canada, Xbox team. Welcome to the Empire Club of Canada's virtual stage. Before we hand it over to our panel, I'd like to invite Cameron McDonald, partner, national co-chair, sports and gaming law at BLG, one of our leading sponsors, to deliver some opening remarks. Over to you, Cameron. Thanks very much, Kelly, and good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of the entire BLG team, I'd like to extend our warm thanks to the entire club for providing us with the opportunity to be here today as lead sponsor alongside such great panelists who we'll hear from shortly. It is definitely an exciting time to be in the video game industry in Canada right now. Our country has become a major leader in this emerging industry, quietly growing into one of the largest and most successful of its kind in the world. And as Canada's largest law firm, with a national sports and gaming law focus group that extends from coast to coast, with subject matter experts across all areas of the law, we are well-versed in supporting the growth and the development of both established as well as startup and high growth companies in the space. And in that capacity, we find these reports that come out from ESAC Interdicity on a biennial basis, very useful as they help provide the reader with a more holistic and macro appreciation of the growth, opportunities and challenges arising in the Canadian video game industry year over year. And this report is certainly of great interest this year to many in the industry as it covers the period most impacted by the global pandemic and illustrates the resiliency of this sector, as well as the challenges it faced, as the way that we were all used to doing business seemed to turn upside down overnight. In this regard, and as you'll see later in the video, the latest report reveals that the majority of video game companies in Canada experienced declines in productivity over the pandemic, with the larger players suffering the bigger brunt of that impact. As well, only one out of 10 large companies in Canada tend to return to a fixed office environment in this sector. So the video game industry is certainly no exception to these new demands for hybrid work environments. And we could likely devote an entire segment of the Empire Club just to discuss this topic. It's certainly something in hot debate right now in the legal community. In terms of success stories, notwithstanding the challenges posed by COVID-19, the Canadian video game industry continued its tremendous growth trajectory over the past two years, injecting much needed capital into our economy and living up to its reputation as a national champion, making a global impact. To that end, the latest report reveals a significant number of new active video game companies emerging in Canada since 2019, something we have certainly witnessed at the firm over the course of the past couple of years, especially in our Ontario and Quebec offices. Video game companies are also expected to generate upwards of $4.3 billion in revenue this year, reflecting 20% growth since 2019. And I'm fairly certain that my son's addiction to playing Fortnite may have contributed to at least half of that $4 billion revenue figure, but I will digress. And last but certainly never least, the report reveals that a large proportion of established companies in the sector have also adopted equity, diversity, and inclusion programs, which is certainly a positive development and always a much needed one. So there's no shortage of encouraging data from this report, but being mindful of time, I'll wrap up here and would just like to reiterate how delighted we are as a firm to be joining some of our clients and industry friends today at the Empire Club to hear more about this latest report, as well as the insights of our fantastic panelists. So without further ado, I'll now turn it over to Jason Hilchie, who's moderating today's panel, and he can get the discussion started. Over to you, Jason. Thanks very much, Cameron. And I just want to thank the Empire Club of Canada for hosting us today. I want to thank all the sponsors that have made this event possible. And I want to thank the 
great panelists that we have here today to talk about some of the things that Cameron just mentioned about how the video game industry is making a big impact on Canadian economy and social fabric. So before I do that, I do want to play a video for you to really set the stage. It is a video that really kind of creates the greatest hits of some of the statistics that have come out of our economic impact study that we just released a couple of weeks ago. And it really will show you some of the innovations and games that are being made in Canada. It really is an exciting time to be in the video game industry. And we want to really show you and give you the context before we get into the conversation today. So if you'll watch this two minute video, we'll begin the panel immediately afterwards. And it went like... you all enjoyed that. It, it really is an easily consumable way of, of understanding the context of how big the video game industry is becoming. You know, I was in this job, I started this job in, in 2012, and the amount of growth that I've seen over the last nine years that you know I've been working and, and working with our members to grow this industry has been phenomenal. And like Cameron said, the ability of our industry to be resilient through the pandemic really truly was remarkable. Um, but I'm not the speaker today, and I'm the moderator, and so we've got a great uh, panel of, of people that really represent the entire industry. We've got Deirdre Beep Air from Atlantic Canada, running a Canadian-owned and operated studio, Francis Baye from Ubisoft. They are the largest employer in our industry in Canada, and then Michelle Liam from Xbox. Xbox is building 
consoles, but also making games in their own studios in Canada. So we've got a really interesting group of people to talk about the full gamut. So let's get into it. And Francis, I'm going to start with you from Ubisoft. You're one of the you are the largest employer in our in our video game industry in Canada. You've got studios across the country, obviously in Montreal and Toronto, but also smaller cities such as Halifax and Winnipeg. And you've recently opened studios both in Saguenay and then last week in Sherbrooke in Quebec. Now, as a global company, why has Ubisoft chosen to invest so heavily in Canada? What makes Canada such a great place to make video games? So you actually want the recipe, Jason? If you've got the cookbook, yeah. <laughs> so I think there's four ingredients, really, when you look into that. Um, and after that, it's a question of mixing all of those ingredients uh, properly together. But uh, I think the first ingredient is really the, the right financial conditions uh, to set a studio. You know, creating a game, I don't need to tell you, Jason, it's, it's, it's a innovative, but yet a very risky proposition. And so if you want to reduce your investment risk, having such programs like you have in multiple provinces here in Canada, uh, the IDMs program, the Interactive Digital Media program, coupled with the uh, shred tax credit or the scientific research and experimental development program that you have at the federal level. When you work those two things together, it really helps reduce your investment risk. And when you reduce your investment risk, you automatically create more appetite for risk. And when you create appetite for risk, you create innovation. And so this, this proposition that we have here in Canada on the financial side is really one of the, the four key ingredients. The second one is really the, uh, the access to talent. And, and, and you know, don't get confused. There's always been a scarcity of talent in our industry. You know, we've never seen a situation where there was a surplus of talent in the video game industry. So what's happening now is not new to us. So what we've been able to do everywhere we set a studio is to work in partnership with college and universities and create new programs or you know, accelerate the existing programs with new people and new students coming into the program to, to feed that, uh, that new world or that, those jobs, the future that we're creating in the industry. Um, the third ingredient, I would say, is uh, something that sometimes in the shadow, I think most of the time is in the shadow, is, is the extraordinary people that work in the economic development agencies around Canada. And every time you see a press conference, like the one you saw last week in Sherbrooke, you always see the conclusion of multiple years of discussion with development economic agencies or foreign investment agencies or people really passionate around creating opportunities in their cities, their province, or their country. So this is the, the really the third, but sometimes more um, uh, absent element that people don't recognize right from the start. And last but not least, I would say that the opportunity to work on iconic brands is really important. When you have the luxury to work on Splinter Cell and, and, and Assassin's Creed and Rainbow Six and Far Cry and Watch Dogs, those are the type of brands that are played worldwide by hundreds of millions of people. So what happened then is that you have commercial successes, money that comes from outside the country, that comes back to the country to be able to pay for more talent and be able to create more games. So it's really a, a virtual circle. 
Yeah, and some of these games that we're talking about, Francis, we're, we're talking about budgets similar to, to motion pictures. I mean, $100 million productions just for the production of a game, plus another $100 million for marketing and distribution. I mean, these are, are massive games. And, you know, I, I just go back to your comment about um, talent and, and not finding a surplus of talent. You know, our, our economic study showed that Quebec generated about 1,000 new jobs over the last G, uh, two years in our industry. But there are about 2,000 open jobs available right now in our industry in that province alone. So the growth could have been, you know, much more substantive. But, uh, you know, we, we were struggling, I think, to, to find those people. But, you know, I, it does lead to me in my next question to you, Francis. I'll go back. You know, why has Ubisoft decided to open so many studios across Canada? You know, is it because of... The, 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 want, the, the want and need to diversify where you're finding that talent? Because you've opened up studios in some really interesting spots, right? I mean, obviously, Sherbrooke wouldn't come to mind as the, the top spot where you would open up a studio. Obviously, you've been doing this for a reason, Halifax as well on the East Coast. Why not just hire everybody in Montreal and build a mega studio there? Hmm. I think there's there's been a shift, right? So if you look back in 1997 and a few years after that, it used to be you know, if you want to employ the economic development terms, it used to be that um, investment attracted talent. So wherever you set shop, people would flew from all over the country to, uh, to work in this specific location. But now there's been a change. And really over the last few years, what we see is that actually is the opposite, is investment follow talent. So we are following talent wherever it is. And we are offering that talent to work either in one of our main studios or in a smaller studio, but in their own city. So you can actually be born, be raised, study, and now work if you want to work in the video game industry in your own city. And that's a very interesting proposition to, uh, to the people from those cities. It sure is. It's definitely an interesting proposition for the economic developers, too. In a past life, yes. I was one of them, and I can tell you that Every small town across Canada right now is trying to figure out how they can get the video game industry to come now with this work from anywhere uh, kind of uh, approach that uh, seems to be being taken. Thanks, Francis. I'm going to pivot now to, to, to Deirdre, to, to Beep. Now, you're based in Atlantic Canada. It's not an area that's traditionally known for game development, even though we just talked about Ubisoft as a studio. There's, there are some other big brands. But in spite of this, you know, your other ocean group's been able to grow into a real success story, you know, with, with multiple studios in a couple of different provinces on the East Coast. You know, you're making games that are being played all over the world. Now, outside of creative talent that Francis was just talking about, you know, what are the factors that have supported the game development industry in smaller provinces like PEI and Newfoundland? You know, and how have you been able to, to grow there? How have you been able to find the talent that you need in that part of the country? Yeah, I think, uh, Jason, it's important first to understand um, how devastating out-migration and brain drain has been for Atlantic Canada for many, many years. So there has been for such a long time, um, I mean, I'm 55 years old. So, you know, from when I was a child, I was hearing about diversifying the economy from our resource-based industries. And but it's taken a long time for all the players to really understand that and meaning, you know, the educators, industry, government. Um, but I think now we've, we're, we're really getting that right. And so for the video game industry, I think we, 
you know, we, we ticked a lot of boxes, right? We, we were appealing to young people um, to, to want to work in, in our industry. Um, we have a, a very creative, um, I would say, culture in Atlantic Canada. I mean, specifically, if you look at Newfoundland and Labrador, for example, I mean, every second person on the CBC is from Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, you know, it's, it's disproportionately so. And, and also, of course, our technical and engineering background um, from mining and oil and gas, et cetera. So I think, you know, the, the tools were there. We just needed the people to do it. And we needed that collaboration to do it. And uh, uh, people like my brother, who, who left Atlantic Canada back in the 80s and went to California and, and started his first video game studio out there, um, you know, he, he had a passion to want to uh, give back to the region. And I, I think that's uh, quite indicative of a lot of people who've left our region. They, they won't necessarily come back and live because they've started their families and homes other places, but they are prepared to, to um, help either financially or through their networks. I mean, uh, look at yourself, Jason. I mean, Jason's from Nova Scotia. His wife's from Newfoundland and Labrador, and he's, he's the first one to always, you know, uh, reach out to me to get me to the table with these larger companies like Microsoft and Ubisoft and, and be able to have our voice heard. So I think that's that's really played a part too. Um, I, I will go back to the, the ticking of the boxes though. I think as well, um, you know, we've, we've embraced uh, the importance of immigration in Atlantic Canada and that's allowed us, while we were working with the, with the long-term strategy of getting our educational institutions to uh, bring in the curriculum that we needed for industries such as ours, um, we had an immediate need, of course, for experienced talent. Um, I think some of the biases toward Atlantic Canada that are often uh, the case in other regions of Canada meant that that we were we weren't having plus also competition from the larger companies in the early days we weren't having success in um, recruiting from other parts of the country but great success in um, recruiting from all over the world and that of course also has ended up giving us a very uh, in many cases a very diverse workforce which helps the bottom line in the end because it makes our products better i could really go on about this all day but i'll, I'll leave it there well, the okay. pandemic has really kind of changed the situation there, right? I mean, it's to, in the Globe and Mail today, they were saying Nova Scotia is about to hit a million people. Uh, you know, I know when I worked in economic development in Nova Scotia, that would have been a dream that I don't think any of us thought we were going to see because it, it, the trend was moving the other direction. You know, and Francis has a studio there, Ubisoft, and, uh, you know, Take-Two that makes the PGA Tour games as a, a studio in Nova Scotia. And, you, you know, obviously you're in PEI in Newfoundland. So what we are seeing is some some opportunity on the East Coast. And, and it'll be interesting to see as this maybe this this out migration from Ontario to the East Coast where, you know, houses are a little cheaper and, and people are moving, whether or not that's going to have an impact on our industry there. Yeah, certainly those uh, things like the, the cost of living were very helpful in the early days. Prices are rising now. And, um, you know, that's that's something else we'll we'll need to um you know, get our heads around as we move forward. But I, I did want to pick up on one point that Francis mentioned too, and it's sort of interesting, at least for our company specifically, um, when when he spoke about working on these iconic titles, and that's that was really a um, a big part of our ability to attract because Other Ocean, um, because we had originally started in California, um, although with with uh, Canadian owners, we um, you know we were a third party public 
publisher for the most part. That was our bread and butter in the early days. And so we've worked on some really great titles and that helped us with the attraction of our staff. So, so for those who would know this, larger publishers like Ubisoft would hire companies like Other Ocean to work with them on the development of their products. So we would be able to have those games in our roster as well. Um, but also there's there's a, a, a group of people too who want to work on their own original titles. Um, so it's, it's great to work on these iconic titles, but then there are also those in the industry who have worked on these titles and, and have those on their resume, but also have an interest in developing their own um, original IP. Some would call it the sort of holy grail of video game development to be able to work on your own IP. And a, an indie, like a company like ours, we've we've had the ability to be able to do to do both because because of the great relationships we have with our publishers and the success we've had on projects like micro uh, um, uh, rick and morty which we were nominated uh, for an emmy um, and minecraft and some other titles that we've worked on so we had those on our roster and that allowed us to be able to develop our own products too which is really um interesting to a lot of creative talent yeah, that, that that is all uh, additional information that's that's that really sets the stage for this question to Michelle. Now, you used the term "be mm. third-party publisher," and I mean that's uh, a, a, maybe a little bit of inside baseball for a lot of the people in the audience today. Uh, now, Michelle, Xbox is the example of a first-party publisher, so we use these terms: first-party publishers, third-party publishers. But first-party publishers, they they make the boxes, right? They make the consoles like Xbox and PlayStation, Nintendo. That, that's what we call first-party publishers. And then third-party publishers would be like Ubisoft and, and Other Ocean, those who make the games that are then played on those consoles. Kind of like, I guess if we were going to compare it to TV, which I hate to do, it's kind of like the channel and then the producer, uh, the, 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 the film company that makes the show, and then the channel is the is the distributor but uh i don't know whether that's an exact uh, good example but you're you're the example of the first party publisher michelle you know meaning that you produce consoles people play but you also produce amazing games here in canada like you know gears of war made in in uh, at the coalition studio in vancouver but you're also well known for other games that are that are sold worldwide like halo um you know what what does the growth of canada's video game industry you know, mean for Xbox, both from a hardware perspective, but also because you are making games as well. So you're doing both. So what 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 does this this amazing growth that we're seeing mean for you? Yeah, no, thanks, Jason. First, I would say it's uh, it's great that uh, you do have first party and third party, and you know, big developers and small developers on the panel. I think it's perfect to represent really the industry as a whole. Um, but from a Microsoft perspective, you know, it's the demand has just been unprecedented, both from a hardware perspective as well as a games perspective, whether it's a, a game that Microsoft has made or a third party game. Um, and, you know, what I love about this industry is gaming is really one of those things that's introduced a lot of young people into careers in tech. So not only are we as a whole entertaining and building communities, um, but the, the platform is there to build interest in tech careers as well. Um, so when you think about Microsoft on the game development front, I kind of think of two things. Um, one, really proud of the first party, um, bigger you know, development like the coalition who's made Gear, Gears of War, you know, these big AAA titles made in Canada, such a great story. Um, big commercial commercial success. 
Um, but we also have a, a program that I'm really proud of called Idea Xbox. And this is a platform that actually supports uh, smaller studios around the world, including in Canada. So studios like MDHR that made Cuphead, um, Capybara made Super Time Force, um, there's even a, a single developer named Andrew Shoulders who made a game like today. <clears throat> and what I love about this is it, it's important to recognize that in order to create a really broad, inclusive gaming community, there has to be something for every type of gamer. You know, there's there's so many devices to play on and so many di different types of games um, that it, it you know it's symbiotic. It it allows more development to create more games that is then broader and more inclusive for the diff different types of gamers out there. But it also, from this idea Xbox platform also supports these independent creators. It really gives them a platform to showcase their creativity, their art, and really help them potentially reach um, broader audiences that they wouldn't otherwise um, be able to reach. Yeah, it's a really interesting program. And I mean, it's it's extremely important, I think, as well, as we move into this this next generation of the industry where content is is king, right? Everybody is now competing for content. And so a lot of the first party publishers uh, like, like Xbox uh, and even some third party publishers like Ubisoft are supporting uh, independent developers, you know, helping them get their games to market, helping them get them get them out there. And, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about this next generation of the industry being the content wars, uh, because it's really not so much anymore about the hardware. It's about what games you can find on that hardware. And so uh, it should be really interesting. But that program is uh, is fantastic. And yeah, you've mentioned some really good ones that were actually made here in, in Canada. So now, Francis, the Canadian video game industry employs you know, over 32,000 people, as we saw in the video, and that's up 17% from 2019, which, keep in mind, we're traversing the last year and a half, two years of the, of the pandemic. Now, one of the things that's really changed, obviously, not only have we been resilient, we've been able to create more jobs, but the whole way we work has been upended, right? How's Ubisoft been able to adapt to the pandemic to sustain its growth and continue to release you know, some of these AAA titles that we mentioned are costing upwards of $100 million. And how, how have you been able to maintain such strong collaboration with your teams in this work from home, work from anywhere environment and continue to, to put out things like Far Cry? And, you know, I mean, how, how are you doing it? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. When you think about it, we went from uh, seven studios in Canada to 6,000 studios uh, from uh, one day to the next, right, on, on March 12, 2020. And uh, I, I must say that uh, only after one week, we had everybody up and running in those 6,000 different individual homes. It's amazing when you think about it, uh, to so quickly adapt to a unseen before situation, right? And so when you look back and you try to analyze what, what played in our favor, right, during that, that, that unbelievable period, uh, there was two things. I think the first one, is that most of our employees are also gamers. So for sure, they had a great equipment at home and they had a great internet connection at home. So it was not like they had to all of a sudden equip themselves with internet and, and, and fast or high-speed internet connection or with powerful PC. So what we needed to do is to, to add a layer on top of that 
to add the secure remote desktop access thanks to the Citrix partners partners that we have. So, so that created the capacity to work remotely at home in a confidential and, and secure environment, at least on your PC. But there was another ingredient that, uh, that saw us, and, and that was the capacity we had over the years to work in co-development with multiple studios around the world. So we were not new to working on Teams or creating on Zoom. This is something we did daily, every day we worked, even before the pandemic, to connect with people in Singapore and in Paris and in India and, and from all over Canada to create together a single game. So yes, we expanded that to 6,000 different studios at individual homes, but the culture was already there to work in collaborative fashion with people uh, all across the world. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, this concept of distributed development, I mean, Ubisoft is, is obviously with all of its studios, probably you know, one of the, the leaders in being able to make games uh, across multiple studios in multiple time zones all around the world. And that technology and expertise certainly helped with that, that ability uh, to, to continue to release some of, of these games. But yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been really interesting. I mean, we moved home, our industry, almost 30,000 full-time people. Uh, and then throughout it, you know, even more, obviously, as we've grown. But yet most of our companies have been able to continue to release the games, you know, uh, mostly on schedule with the quality that we would expect. And, uh, you know, some of them have done phenomenally well. So that that is, uh, I think, a testament not only to the uh, companies that work in our industry, but, you know, the business underpinnings that you've all been able to create over the last decade or so that allow you to do this. Yeah, and I think we need to really raise our hat to... Uh... You know, we all have uh, very expert IT personnel in our, in our different companies. And, you know, on March 12th, they really raised up to the opportunity to make sure that everything was going to go smoothly for all of our employees. And so I, I really want to recognize their efforts because, uh, you know, they, they, they really allowed that to, allow, to, 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 to function, to, uh, to work out. Yeah, and I mean, it doesn't look like that's going to change much going forward. I mean, I think Ubisoft has made an you know the announcement that there's going to be some flexibility with the workforce moving forward. You know, you might not be going back to the office full time. Yeah, we believe in both. We believe that the future of work is going to be hybrid. It's going to be flexible, and thanks to the multitude of studio, you can work from any studio of Ubisoft in Canada. Uh, you can work from home. You can work in a collaboration fashion in the studio physically. So it's going to be really flexible and, and hybrid for sure. Yeah, it seems to be, as our, our study showed, uh, a common uh, business strategy moving forward. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, now, Bebo, I'm going to pivot to you, and I'm going to, I'm going to jump to a, a different question, uh, one that I know you're very passionate about. Our economic study shows that only 23% of the industry is comprised of women. And even fewer than that are actually working in technical roles, whether they're doing the computer software engineering programming or, or uh, digital artistry that goes into building the games. Um, we know though that 50% of players in Canada are, are women, are females, girls and, and women. Now we've talked for years about digital skills and getting those into the school system at a young age, but knowing this is an important issue, and again, one that you're very passionate about, you know, what, do you, what do we need to do uh, you know, I, obviously, as the video game industry, we're, we're going to take uh, responsibility for that uh, ourselves. But this is a problem that's impacting the broader tech industry as well. But, you know, speaking from ourselves today on a video game basis, you know, what do we need to do to get more women into the industry? 
Um, I really wish I knew. Um, but I will try and answer the question. So, and, and first off, I want to say, like, I really don't profess to be an expert in this at all. Um, I mean, obviously, I happen to be in this sector, and uh, I did do, I happen to do a technical degree in television, but, um, you know, I, I really feel that this is not a problem that's going to be solved by uh, people like Deirdre Ayer or Michelle. I think this is something, you know, we are sort of the, the one-offs in the, um, in the industry. And um, I really feel that this is something that needs to be um, worked on by everybody. So like with, with any problem um, with regard to inclusion with uh, marginalized groups or um, it, it, it's really a societal issue. And I don't think that, you know, I can fix it or my company can fix it or the companies can fix it or the educators can fix it. I think as a society, we really need to work together. I don't think it can be fixed by just putting code in classrooms in high school and encouraging more women to do engineering or something. This is something that um, we really need to, everyone to come together collaborative, collaboratively um, and uh, and it needs it needs to start very young, very, very, very young, you know, from from when we put the girls in pink and the boys in blue or we hand the boy the remote because maybe he can change the batteries more quickly or whatever, you know, like it needs to change um, at, at, at birth. And and I think it needs to be a collaborative approach. Like I said, I don't think we can lean on people like me or companies like mine. We all need to come together to do it. Um, but really, Jason, to you know, to sit here and try and give you all the answers to something like that, like I just don't have it. This is this is a you know a serious issue. I the data is there though, like you say, right? I mean, we know that um, that that girls and women are want to play video games and do play video games, and um, so one would imagine they would want to work in the industry. And I think that shows in itself that um, that you know. We can think we're doing enough. Um, you know, we can we can um, bring certain programs in, but but we're simply not doing enough, and we're not looking at this in the the broad way that it needs to be. And this really should be everyone's problem. You know, um, if you look at um, there's been so much data done on on how having a diverse workforce um, creates better products, and so this is this is. Uh, um, you know, not just a sort of social issue. This is an economic issue that that all of the video game companies and all the tech companies should be working toward with all the different stakeholders. And um, yeah, anyway, there you have it. Oh, it, it's it's fair. I mean, that, that's a fair answer. I mean, you know, obviously our industry has been doing what we can with respect to yeah. you know, advocating for. Uh, curriculum changes in the early grades. You know, our mutual friend, Kate Arthur, who runs Kids Co. Jeunesse, who's a, a third party. Uh, I don't want to use the, the term third party because we've already explained that in video game terms, but uh, she, she's an outside organization that goes into schools and teaches coding to young kids. And, you know, she's told us very clearly that you really do need to get into the school system before grade four uh, to begin introducing these types of skills to socialize them and make them you know, acceptable and, and, and avoid those stereotypes, like you said, of tech be, being a boy's thing. So, you know, there's things we, we definitely, uh, you know, need to do there. 
I mean, I will say, you know, as a as a company, um, we have uh, we're we're not particularly successful at it. Um, we have gotten better. Uh, we do have lots of women in leadership roles, but as you mentioned, those those positions are not necessarily in the production process of the games. Um, although we have gotten better with that too. Um, but you know, I personally, I always try and make sure that I have women at the table. That I'm that I'm um, you know raising up um, our, our juniors and and mid level women. It's you know making sure that they have a say. Um, you know, speaking to um, to the directors in our company who um, on the production level, all our men, um, you know, regularly making sure that they're engaging the women within the company. And, um, and also, you know, like I was saying earlier, you're always great at bringing me to the table. I try to do the same. I get asked to speak at something and I believe that there's a woman in my company who could easily do it or do it better. Um, you know, I, I try and make sure that other people get those opportunities too. Um, I say yes to pretty much everything that I get asked to speak at to show that that we're here, that there's women here. So, you know, th those are some of the things that that I do and our company does. But um, but really, you know, if we're really going to fix this problem, um, and you know, we've talked, we've all talked about the talent issues in in the country. We've we've got an awful lot of women in this country who are not engaged in tech or video yep. games when it comes to it as a career. So there's there's some um, some answers to our problems there if we could figure it out. Yeah, and I mean, that that's fantastic. And I mean, Michelle, just to pivot to you, and this will be our last question before we, we go to the floor and get some questions for our panelists. We, we just talked about diversity, obviously a very important uh, topic that all of us are speaking about. As, as, as Beep is saying, I mean, we really need to, 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 to ensure that our industry is diverse as possible to one for it's the right thing, but also because we need to access as, as much talent as we possibly can find. And we need to be as uh, as thorough with that as possible. As some of the things though that Xbox is doing, now we're, we're moving away to a different type of diversity. And I wanna talk a little bit about accessibility with you. Yeah, can you talk to me about what Microsoft and Xbox is doing to reach a broader, more uh, uh, diverse audience, uh, both with your games and with your hardware? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and first I just want to, you know, thank Deirdre for bringing up, you know, the issue of women in gaming and bringing more talent, you know, right at an early age. It's certainly something that we look at at Microsoft as well. So I appreciate that, you know, as an industry, everyone's really working towards, um, towards that goal. And certainly, um, as you mentioned, Jason, inclusivity is, we, we think of it quite broadly. Um, you know, our, our mantra is really for gamers to be able to play on the devices they want, you know, with the friends they want, anytime they want. And so when we have that mission statement, we think incredibly broad and we even think about, you know, the disabilities of different gamers out there and their ability or inability to even hold a controller. Not everybody has can hold a controller. So Microsoft has come up with, uh, three years ago, launched an adaptive controller. And um, this is just an incredible device. It's, um, it's been designed um, for gamers who have limited mobility. It has a number of different customizations. 
Um, for example, you could have a button with a wheelchair headrest um, for controls. You could have controls triggered with a knee or foot pressure. Um, it, it really can be customized depending on um, the person that's playing and, and what their abilities you know, may be and, and how to set it up so that they can game. And uh, I mean, I can tell you from personal experience talking to some of those people that, uh, that have been able to start playing games again with that adaptive controller, it's just, it's just opened up their world again, because as you know, gaming really, really connects uh, gamers together through this online community. And I mean, it's beautiful what technology has done and, you know, has allowed people to play across the globe. So as big as Canada is as a, as an industry, um, we're also impacting the global industry, right? We're impacting gamers across the globe with the games that we develop. And so this, um, this adaptive controller has just been so powerful to, to show an example of thinking beyond sort of what we picture as that, you know, traditional gamer um, to think about, you know, who can actually play and making it available for people um, to play. So, so we're, we're very proud of it. And, uh, you know, even though it's not been a, a massive commercial success, it's, you know, perhaps um, not something that's readily, um, you know, in demand for a lot of people, it's, it's still the right thing to do to make sure that we're reaching everyone who wants to game, not, um, you know, not just those that can hold a controller. Yeah. And it's, and, and just, just to finish up, uh, it's really interesting too, because it's not just about the controller. It's about the way that Microsoft and Xbox are developing their games, right? I mean, I've spoken with a number of people and we, and we, uh, uh, we profiled one of them last year. Uh, and, you know, these people are part of a group called Able Gamers. They advocate for games to be made with controls that allow them to be able to, to, to use them properly. And, you know, Microsoft actually also builds games with, uh, in collaboration with some of these uh, groups that ensure that the actual controls and the movements and the way the coding is done is done uh, in a way that makes this easier for them. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you think about all of our products across Microsoft, you know, just different ways to really enable um, all types of different peoples with different abilities um, to be able to utilize the products and really help everyone communicate together. Um, it's extremely inspiring. And I think that um, I love that the video game industry with its creativity has really thought thought that through. And I know we're not the only ones thinking that, um, but it, it, it is. It's great to be able to connect with those communities and really get some deep insights through our engineers, through our developers um, of what else needs to be thought about when developing these games to make them completely accessible and completely inclusive. Yeah, it's amazing. And I suspect that the future only has more to offer when it comes to ensuring the, you know, accessibility within video games. I know it's a, a massive topic in our industry. Okay, well, I want to thank you, Michelle. I want to thank Francis and, and Deirdre Beep. Uh, I, I, that concludes our panel. Now, I'm going to go to the Q&A, and I've got a, a number of questions here, so we'll do our best, and I've got uh, someone on, on in my ear letting me know when, when we have to shut this down, but I'm just going to put these out to the panel, and, and whoever wants to kind of chime in, uh, we, can, uh, we, can, we can do it that way. So um, Monica asks, I keep hearing about growth of jobs being offered in the gaming industry, but what about people that want to transition from their existing job? What experience comes uh, from a different industry that might be valuable for the video game industry? Maybe I can pick up this one. 
Um, hello, Monica. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the question. Um, I think there's two things to answer your question. The first one is that uh, you know the video game industry will not hire only artists and programmers. So we we need uh, finance people, we need HR, we need marketing, we need community managers, we need technical expertise. So there's a range of different jobs. And as Jason alluded earlier, uh, there's 2,000 jobs open just in Quebec right now. So I would certainly encourage you to, uh, to scroll through that. And just at Ubisoft, we have, I believe, 345 jobs opening right now. So there's uh, interesting opportunities. But the, the other thing I want to mention is that we have uh, worked with different partners. Uh, and I'm thinking out of Quebec City, uh, an organization called Quebec 42 was actually helping people to retrain in the programming side of things. So you, you could be coming from all sorts of background with no necessarily, with no past experience in programming. And you join Quebec 42, you are uh, you know, offered a three-year training in programming, alternating with internship. So, so this allows you to, to learn a new skill. Uh, and to, to get immediately hands-on experience with companies member of Quebec 42. So it's based on the uh, uh, similar school in, in France. And I know they're opening other uh, 42 schools across the, the, the world. So uh, interesting for uh, retraining. Yeah, and, and I think it's important that you note, you, we, and I may have oversimplified it in my questions, but I'm trying to keep things as outside baseball as possible. Uh, you know, and artists and programmers are obviously the the, the biggest uh, portion of the industry. But I mean, Ubisoft, you, you've got economists, you've got uh, historians to make some of your games as historically accurate as possible. I know a lot of our companies are hiring data analytics people, you know, to ensure that games are 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 as fun as they possibly be, maximizing the experience, artificial intelligence programmers, community managers, as all these games go online, they form like Fortnite and others, they form their own communities. Uh, and we need people to manage those. And, you know, it, it, it's just every year there's new and new jobs that I have to hear. So, you know, for Monica, just know that you don't have to be an artist or a programmer to get into the video game industry. And I mean, pro production jobs, producer jobs, they're, they're, they're project manager jobs. So if you have project management skills, uh, they would likely transfer over to the video game area. Uh, I want to jump to the next one. Rod asks, and this is this is a good one because it's been in the uh, media a lot lately, especially with the change of name at Facebook. Um, I had a fifth. I don't know who's going to answer this one, but okay. So this because this is this is really new stuff. At a fifty thousand foot level, could you explain how the video game industry will be a pillar of the future metaverse? And we've heard so much about this uh, recently. How should Canada prepare for the metaverse? We're already there. <laughs> <laughs> so I will keep it short because I'm sure Michelle and Deirdre would uh, add on that. But you know, to be clear, I think that creating the metaverse is creating an opportunity for people to improve their digital life, like to, to have the possibility to, to wander around in, in, in the UK in the years uh, 1100. And that's already happening through Valhalla, to Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And it's also an opportunity to improve the way we, 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 we offer our, our gamers, our customers, uh, the capacity to, to improve the way they do things in their current life. So whether you're you know, a repair mechanic and you are able to access 
the, the engine of your car on a virtual settings, and you may have expert outside of your garage that give you indication how to fix the engine, that's also part of the metaverse. So I think both by improving the virtual life and by improving the actual life thanks to the virtual world, you already have in Canada the expertise to, uh, to do both, actually. Michelle, Beep, any, any thoughts on the metaverse? Well, I, I mean, I agree with Francis. I, I think we're already there. I think the technology is already, you know, being built, being executed, being utilized. And I think the exciting thing about it is it's just going to continue to grow from there. So we're already on the trajectory. Um, and I think the sky's the limit. Um, but it, it's very exciting to think about. And I love the question. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I figured we'd get something about the metaverse. I, I'm still waiting for the NFT question um, that we haven't gotten any on non-fungible tokens, which I wouldn't know how to answer <laughs> even if we did. So um, here's a question for, um, you know, Beep, I'm going to kick this to you. What's the greatest opportunity for Canada's video game industry? It seems to be doing very well, but how do we take it to the next level given the size of the global market, which by the way, uh, is is massive. There's about two and a half billion video game players on Earth, and the size, the capitalization of the video game industry uh, is uh, approaching two hundred billion dollars. So it's uh, absolutely uh, insane the amount of growth that has happened. But you know, how, how we how do we get more of that in Canada? I think I'll take the opportunity here to uh, throw a bouquet to the Canada Media Fund because um, it really is a fund that is. Um, uh, I mean, countries all over the world are jealous of this fund, right? So the Canada Media Fund slash Telefilm, you might be more familiar with um, from the, the film and television side is, uh, is a fund that um, allows for the development of Canadian content. And um, it, there, is an, there is an interactive uh, component to that. So separate from film and television. And it gives an opportunity for startups and small independent uh, companies or family-owned companies like like ours, uh, like Other Ocean, um, to develop their own um, intellectual property uh, without necessarily having to go for you know VC funding of some sort or um, or taking all the risk on themselves, which may be quite difficult. Um, so. I, I really think that that is a competitive advantage that certainly the smaller companies in the country have uh, when competing against other small indies in other countries, um, because it is an opportunity for, for these companies to develop their own original IP so that they're not always working on somebody else's, um, somebody else's property. Uh, it also, if that property is, uh, if that intellectual property continues to be owned in Canada, um, and I say that because sometimes these things are bought, but if it's continued to be owned in Canada, um, it, it also means that that the full revenues from those games can go back to Canada. So, um, I mean, there's probably lots of different ways to answer that question, Jason, but I did want to throw that out there because that, that fund has been so tremendous to so many different companies and allowed so much growth for the smaller companies, which in turn is helpful to the larger companies who end up sometimes buying these smaller companies or providing talent for these companies. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that's one area that that continued investment by the government and um, the other funders of, of, of the Canada Media Fund um, is uh, is paramount. Okay, 
And, and I agreed. I, I'm sure that Francis has his own uh, ideas and Michelle. Uh, I've got one question before I want to wrap it up and I want to get it in. So I'm going to put this out. I mean, we've been talking a lot about talent. We have a question from a computer game development graduate from George Brown, who's finding it hard to land a job in the industry. Uh, companies want 3D art modelers with experience. Now, this is a thing we, it's not unique to the video game industry. I remember going through this when I started working in, in banking. You know, everybody wants experience, but you can't get experience until you get a job. So what, what advice can you offer, on, how, on especially on new graduates and juniors getting into the industry and, and landing that first job? I'm happy to start that if you want. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't know where this, where this person is applying, but I would say that you, you might have better luck with, with a smaller indie because, um, you know, they, they are more than likely in a situation where they um, can take on a junior and, and uh, would appreciate the sort of, um, I guess, the, the skills of, a, of, a, of an artist who has... Uh, who can be flexible in what they're producing. And, um, and, you know, a lot of these smaller companies, they really are not able to offer the salaries that really experienced people would demand and expect and deserve. Um, so if you're just coming out of school, you might be in a, in a better position to, to be trying some of these smaller companies. And some of these smaller companies may not be where, where you're located. You know, you might have to consider going to, to a region that has um, less, uh, less availability to experience talent. Um, one thing for sure, make sure you have a, a good portfolio. Um, when you don't have a lot of experience, it's really important to um, have something to show the people uh, who are interviewing you. Um, and, you know, whether that's just something that you, you know, made in your basement or what have you, that it doesn't have to be a whole lot, but some kind of a portfolio for, um, for us to be able to review is really important. And I think you'll find that even if you don't land the job, you'll get a lot of good feedback too. Okay. Thanks. Now, Francis, I'm going to jump to you because obviously you've got a lot of uh, programs like this at Ubisoft that aim to, to, to create highways between academia and, and the studios. So what are you, what are you doing? What are you, what's your advice? I think the, 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 the most important thing is to be visible. You know, if you, if you have a great portfolio, show it around, as Deirdre was saying. You know, make sure that professionals in this industry see your portfolio participate to contests. You know, there's a level up contest in Ontario. There's a university, uh, the Ubisoft University contest in Quebec. Make sure you join those contests. Make sure you show your portfolio and what you can do. You know, go to Game Jam, make yourself known, make yourself available for those events. Go there, be there, be at the Media Mavis in Montreal. You know, be at those events uh, that are uh, created for the industry, by the industry, and make yourself visible. You know, at the end of the day, you know, it's all going to be who you are and what you can do. So don't forget to show up who you are. Michelle, any any last thought before we we end? I, I'm being told we're we're at the end. I'm getting the yeah. I would just say from a LinkedIn perspective, you know, just again, make sure that you're connecting, uh, looking for those studios that you're interested in working for, and connecting with them. Um, again, just uh, elevating your your pro portfolio, your profile um, on social media, particularly from a professional standpoint, um, that will really get you ahead of the game as well. Awesome. And I wish you the best of luck for those out there looking. Yeah. 
Yes. Well, listen, I just want to thank, thank you all. And I think this concludes uh, our Q&A. Thank you. Thank you, Jason, Deirdre, Francis, and Michelle. I'd now like to introduce Tara Kosky, Dean of Students at Durham College, our other lead event sponsor to deliver today's appreciation remarks. Tara, welcome. Thank you, Kelly, and good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of Durham College and all those turning in, I would like to thank our panelists, Deirdre Eyre, Francis Bailly, Michelle Liam, and our moderator, Jason Hilchi, for the engaging discussion about the growing influence and impact of esports in the gaming sector. As we just heard, the gaming industry is multifaceted, complex, and driven by innovation and growth, which the Canadian Video Game Industry Report confirms with its compelling stats. With more employers and employees now in the sector who are enjoying higher salaries along with huge gains in its GDP contributions, as well as the rise of more Canadian-owned video game companies, it's an ideal time to pursue related careers. When Durham College made the decision to invest in esports, we did so knowing that there was a strong potential for incredible opportunities as an institution for our students and within the broader community. The investment has taken the form of our 3,000 square foot esports gaming arena, our Durham Lords esports varsity team, whose Rocket League squad captured the New England Collegiate Conference Championship in their inaugural season, and academic programs focused on the gaming industry. Now, with several years under operation, and despite the global pandemic, we continue to lead the way in this dynamic space. In September 2022, the college will welcome its first cohort of students studying in our new eSport Management Graduate Certificate Program. With its focus on online marketing, copyright law, licensing, sponsorship, event management, content creation, and more, students will be able to learn the tactical skills needed to support and generate revenue within the eSports ecosystem, which includes the gaming culture. And just like other industries, achieving success within the gaming se sector requires a strong set of both technical and soft skills, which is why colleges with their focus on transformative experiential learning are perfectly equipped to arm the next generation of esports professionals with the skills that they need to succeed. So thank you once again to our panelists, as well as the Entertainment Software Association of Canada for your commitment to driving the industry forward through advocacy, research, and passion. DC is pleased to assist gaming companies and organizations getting to the next level and by preparing its graduates to significantly contribute and drive innovations in the esports industry. So thank you, Kelly, back to you. Thanks, Tara. And thanks again to our panelists and everyone joining us today for tuning in at a later date. Our next event is this Thursday, November 25th at noon Eastern time. Join me for an in-depth sorry, join me for an in-depth discussion with the Honorable Steve Clark, Ontario's Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing. We'll be talking about the challenges of housing supply and affordability and how the provincial government is responding. More details and complimentary registration are available at empireclubofcanada.com. This meeting is now adjourned. I wish you a great afternoon. Stay safe and take care.